and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Brian L. Fry, your host, uh, Spears, Spears Gilbert, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And my guest today is Josh Douglas, Thomas P. Lewis, Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And we're going to be talking about his really fascinating and uh, beautifully written new book, Vote for Us. Uh, or U.S., how to take back our elections and change the future of voting. So, hello, Josh. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. So, um, read your book last night. I really enjoyed reading it, um, and I thought you did a fantastic job of uh, explaining a lot of really interesting and, you know, some potentially controversial arguments about how to expand and reinforce uh, voting rights for for a general audience. Um I thought maybe we could start by kind of walking through uh, a few of the proposals that that you made, um, but also talk a little bit about what you see as the problem here. Sure. Well, let me start with that second question of, of the problem and sort of my approach to writing the book, which, as you said, is really for the general public. It's, you know, it's academic focused in its research, but I wrote it really to try to reach the general public and, and to send this message. And the problem in many ways to me is that anytime you talk to someone about voting rights, the message is really doom and gloom. Uh, voter suppression is on the rise. We have all of these ways in which we're making it harder to vote. And that seems to be the common storyline in the media and among the general public. And I, as a scholar of election law, I know that that's not the only story, that there are a lot of positive enhancements in voting rights and election law that are occurring on the ground in communities all over the country. So what I wanted to do is tell these positive stories. And, and the message in part is, yes, we need to fight voter suppression and uh, unnecessary voter suppression and disenfranchisement, and that's really uh, harmful to our democracy. But if that's the only thing we do, if we're continually playing whack-a-mole against the latest voter suppression tactic, then we're only going to get half the, halfway there in terms of creating a much more inclusive, expansive and, and democracy that we can be proud of. So the approach here was to tell the positive news on voting rights as an antidote to the doom and gloom that we hear so much about. Yeah, I, I, I really got that impression. And, and one of the things I really liked about the book was the way that you used particular individuals as like the locus for the different kinds of stories that you were telling and as examples of the kinds of positive changes and civic engagement that you seem so interested in. Yeah, I call these individuals democracy champions. They're everyday Americans who have decided that they can make a small difference in their community um, by taking a stand, by, you know, whether it's campaigning for a particular initiative or promoting uh, a change in how we elect people or uh, a change in who can vote. Um, as you said, some of them maybe are, are controversial, but what they all uh, the, the common theme among them is these really inspiring everyday Americans who are doing the hard work on the ground. And I think their stories need to be told, which is why each chapter opens with a story of an individual and really walks through the reform through the eyes of one or, or a handful of individuals who are working on these reforms. Great, great. Well, I, I really want to talk a little bit about each one of these reforms because I think all of them are really fascinating and they they, they approach the same issue from a lot of very different angles. Um, so I, I'm interested to hear kind of how you, in your own mind, conceptually tie them all together. But I did have a question for you that grew out of my experience of reading the book is, is that I felt like somehow the 
the proposals at the beginning of the book, while, while all of them are sort of, out of thinking outside the box and really interesting kind of uh, thoughtful proposals, the ones at the beginning seemed like a little less controversial and a little more doable. And as the book progressed, they seemed harder or maybe more controversial. Was that something you were intending to do or was that just my my reading? You know, that's really interesting. I, that that was not intentional and and um you know, so chapter 2 I think it is is about lowering the voting age to 16 mm-hmm. uh, at least for local elections, which has happened in a handful of cities around the US. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty controversial actually. Mm-hmm. At least I have received a lot of pushback. Some uh-huh. of my other scholarship talks about the merits of lowering the voting mm-hmm. age to 16 and uh, why I think it's a good idea and it can create a whole new generation of engaged citizens. Um, so it's interesting that you didn't find that one controversial because, you know, in some ways I thought that is maybe the most of the proposals in the book just based yeah. on feedback I've received from others. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I think in a sense, all the proposals are controversial because everything about voting rights and voting in general is inherently controversial. Of course. Con- controversy all around. But, you know, there are, well, I, I really want to talk about it some more, but it, it did strike me that, you know, with, with the lowering the voting age uh, argument that you were, the, the position that you take and why you think it's a good idea, I, I could see how people would have an initial resistance to it that could be not so difficult to work and it sounds like it's actually it's actually worked in some places to uh to get around it um <clears throat> so yeah well, well let, not, so we, i convinced you yeah I mean, <laughs> which, no which i mean great, honestly right? honestly on the on the lowering the voting age um i i am i am con- i'm absolutely convinced uh by by your argument that that's a sensible and reasonable thing to do and i actually have you know, especially after reading your book, I actually found the the counter arguments really kind of deeply uncompelling. Um, but but l- l- let's start at the beginning and sort of how do you how do you launch the book? What's what's sort of the premise that you come into it with, and, and how do you how do you start making these proposals? Yeah, so I, I start the book in the prologue with I think what is the most compelling story of all of the stories I tell, um, because it seems so counterintuitive, and it actually comes right here from Kentucky. Um, you know, this is a, a book that's nationally focused, and it has stories from Oregon and Colorado and Florida and Rhode Island. Um, but I wanted to start in Kentucky in part because when we think expansion of voting rights and felon disenfranchisement in particular, Kentucky's on the list of the worst states in terms of disenfranchising people for life. But I opened the book with a story of this individual named West Powell. Um, West, when he was 18 years old, uh, which is over 25 years ago now, maybe 30 years, um, uh, broke into an uh, auto salvage yard with his brother and stole a car radio. Uh, he was caught and convicted and sentenced, uh, to a fe- uh, sentenced to a felony or convicted of a felony, um, served a little bit of time in jail after he violated his probation because uh, he came home late after the curfew only because he was working the third shift at the job he was able to get. Um, anyways, ultimately cleaned up his life. Uh, met a woman, got married, got a job. Well, actually, had a hard time getting a job himself, so he opened his own computer repair shop. Um, decided he wanted to go to sports uh, physical therapy school um, to get a physical therapy license. Um, and uh, but but he because he was a felon, Kentucky disenfranchised him for life. Now, the Kentucky legislature had been thinking about an expungement bill, a way to let some low-level felons get an expungement of their records, which would bring back a host of rights, um, including the right to vote. 
Um, and it's a Republican-controlled legislature, and the Senate Judiciary Committee was Republican-controlled, and most of the members of the Judiciary Committee said that they were not in support of allowing expanded rights for uh, any felons, and including Senator Whitney Westerfield, the Republican who's now running for Attorney General in the state. Um, and Wes Powell went to go testify at the hearing and told his story, and, and sort of this very warm, soft-spoken individual who said, look, I made a mistake 20-some-odd years ago, but I've cleaned up my life. I've done everything that society's asked me to do. Um, why can't I get past this mistake? And Westerfield was persuaded. And I interviewed both West Powell and Whitney Westerfield, and it was really interesting to talk to them. Um, Westerfield told me, look, I didn't think anything would change my mind. I was dead set against uh, approving an expungement bill. But after hearing West Powell's testimony, I was convinced. He was compelling. And I thought to myself, look, this is exactly what our criminal justice system should be doing. So Westerfield called his Republican friends and said, we need to support this bill. We need to make this happen. And long story short, they enacted a felon expungement bill. West Powell was able to get an expungement of his record, and he's been a, a voter in every single election since that time. That's great. Yeah. Well, what, you know, what, what really struck me powerfully about that chapter in, in your book is just how deeply symbolic of citizenship and recognition as a citizen, the right to vote can be. For people, you know, even though a lot of people don't actually exercise the right to vote, the ability to exercise the right to vote kind of has a deep symbolic meaning. Yeah, I mean, Wes Powell felt like he was less of a citizen, even though he had served his time, he had done everything he was asked to do. Um, you know, and I asked him about what it means to have the right to vote back, and he said, you know, I'm a voter now, so show me what you got. You got to, you know, cater to my views along with everybody else's views, which you're right, is really powerful understanding of what it means to be a citizen in our democracy. And when we take that right to, uh, right away from some people, it really makes them less of a citizen. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it, and it, and it struck me that it really is a, a kind of civic punishment as well to say to someone, you know, we think you're less than other people, so we're going to deny you the right to be represented in the same way that other people are. Yeah, and certainly Wes Powell and the other uh, felon, so felon disenfranchisement is, is one of the early chapters as well, or felon reenfranchisement, I should say, uh, that looks at stories of various different people around the country and, and movements to ease the felon disenfranchisement laws. Again, in places that we wouldn't really expect, like I talked to a guy from Tennessee uh, who helped to make the process to regain your right to vote a lot more easier uh, in uh, Tennessee. Basically, he took off work every Wednesday or, or Tuesday, whatever day it was, and sort of every once a week went to the state house and um, talked to the legislators. He was a former felon who, again, didn't feel like he could be a full citizen. Um, and so he advocated and they did change the law. So, you know, I think I started the book in some ways with that topic and with the story from Kentucky to demonstrate that, look, we can engage and we can have voter expansions even in the places that you might think of are sort of deeply red and conservative politically. Um, this is, in many ways, a bipartisan story. Mm -hmm. now, to be sure, a lot of the reform successes are, that are happening uh, are happening in more so-called blue areas of the country. But this is really a bipartisan message of, you know, we should all find ways to expand the electorate and, and improve citizenship and then let ideas win the day and not election rules. Right. Right. Okay. Well, let's. I think that's a nice segue into your your next chapter, where you talk about lowering the voting age. And as you say, I think a lot of people reflexively find that 
kind of radical and maybe not a good idea. Um, but you, I think you really combat that intuition in a really effective way. So talk a little bit about why you think lowering the voting age is a good idea. Yeah, and, and, and thanks for your comments on that. Um, so one of the things that I'm focused on is how do we improve turnout overall? You know, when we have an election where almost half the elector doesn't show up and, you know, in midterm elections, it's more than half. And Kentucky has off-year elections where we elect our governor in odd-numbered years. Last time we had 31% turnout. That's just unacceptable to a representative democracy in my mind. And so one of the things that the book overall focuses on is how do we improve voter turnout? And lowering the voting age is, is one way to do so. And here's why. One of the biggest predictors of whether someone is going to vote is whether they voted previously. Voting is habit forming. Um, and also political science studies show that the later you cast your first ballot, the less likely you'll be a habitual voter. That is, we need to get people starting to be politically active and engaged early to create a habit of lifelong voter participation and civic engagement. Well, 18, which has been a historical voting age, um, you know, at least when the country was founded, and is really stolen from British common law. Oh, excuse me, 21 was the voting age at the founding and stolen from British common law and then reduced to 18 after the Vietnam War. Um, is sort of somewhat arbitrary in the way that historically it came about. And also, in today's modern world, it's a very hard time to begin the habit of voting because you're typically leaving home uh, either to enter the workforce or enter higher education. Uh, either you have to register in the new place where you just move and don't really have uh, or know your community, perhaps, um, or you stay registered at your parents' house, in which case you have to apply for an absentee ballot ahead of time, all during all these other life changes. Um, it's no wonder that young people don't jump through all of these hoops the moment that they become eligible to vote. But if we lower the voting age to 16, which again has happened in a handful of cities across the United States, then uh, and couple that with improved civics education, where we actually engage young people in learning about democracy and getting them registered and talking about the importance of uh, civic participation, then they're likely to start that habit earlier. And exact, exact, that's exactly what we've seen uh, in the cities that have done it. 16 and 17 year olds tend to turn out, and this again only for local elections, mm -hmm. but they tend to turn out almost at twice the rate of the 18 to 24 year, old, four year olds in those places. So mm -hmm. for me, the biggest argument in favor is simply let's get people engaged when we can actually capture them, which we have them all in high school when they're 16. Uh, and so I think in the long run, this could really improve voter participation. Right. So you know, part of me wonders whether there might be some selection effects going on there. In other words, right, the people who are most enthusiastic about voting are the ones who are going to start voting soonest and follows that those people are going to continue voting the most. But it, but it sounds like you've, you've got there's some pretty good evidence out there that there's actually a sort of a reinforcing effect as well. I think that's right, because, again, if the people who are going to vote are going to vote anyways, why don't they do so when they turn 18? Well, I think the reason is, is they're jump, going through all these life changes and the system sets up so many hoops that they have to jump through to become, you know, you know, registered and request an absentee ballot. And so the data in places that have done it suggests that 16 and 17 year olds, if we make it easier for them, and again, my proposal has to be accompanied with improving civics education in a meaningful way, which is one of the, the last chapters of the book, um, then I think we can create this generation of, of engaged citizens. Right. So you said that this proposal has been controversial and that people have written to you or spoken to you and pushed back against the idea of lowering the voting age. What kind of arguments have they made? Have they been primarily like 
practical arguments about why it's not a good idea objectively or political arguments like young people are likely to vote for Democrats and not Republicans or young people, you know, might, you know, it might tilt the political spectrum in some way. You know, I get both, but I think the, the biggest objection that I hear is that young people's brains aren't developed enough yet to be educated voters. Um, essentially, they're not mature enough. And you know, people often say, well, have you ever talked to a 16-year-old and see all the stupid things that they do? Mm-hmm. Um, which is why in my research, um, and I mentioned a little bit in this book, but I have a couple other papers that dive into it more deeply, um, I did some reading on psychological studies of brain development. And what I learned is that psychologists generally um, split cognition into what they refer to as hot cognition and cold cognition, sort of brain processes. Um, Hot cognition is um, impulse control, peer pressure type situations. Hey, let's all go go do this stupid thing. And it turns out that the brains are not fully developed to make hot cognition decisions until really age 21 and maybe not 24 or 25. Um, Cold cognition, on the other hand, is reasoned decision making where you have time, deliberation, and you're not subject to peer pressure in the moment. Uh, Voting is clearly a cold cognition activity because even if your friends are all telling you you got to do this, when you enter the ballot box, you you have uh, your choice and your choice alone and you have time to think about it. And psychologists say the brains are fully developed by age 16 uh, universally. Uh, There's really no objection in the psychological community uh, on when brains are developed for cold cognition. So if we want to tie the voting age not to something arbitrary, which is really what 18 is, but to when we think people are intellectually able to become voters, 16 makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I mean, I got to say that when I was reading that chapter in your book and seeing some of those counter arguments, I felt like especially the people making arguments about the like sophistication or emotional maturity of younger potential voters were, were kind of leading with their chin in a way, right? I mean, it's not like we impose any kind of requirement of civic knowledge or emotional maturity on voters once they turn 18. And I, and I guess I kind of feel like, especially in recent years, we seem to have seen a lot of people who are, you know, not necessarily voting on the most reasonable or fully informed basis. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I, I say, I like to say, nothing magical happens at age 18. But something magical seems to happen at age 16, at least according to the psychologists. Mm-hmm. And, you know, go go tell anyone that, you know, the, the Parkland, uh, Florida students who have been so eloquent in uh, engaging the entire country in a debate about gun rights are not mature enough to have a say in our democracy. Mm-hmm. And compare that to, um, you know, some some of the people who have done horrible things and, you know, where they, where's their emotional maturity? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I do think we need to improve civics education throughout the board from younger people all the way up uh, to older adults. But um, certainly uh, 16, the, the, the emotional maturity point doesn't resonate with what the research suggests. Yeah, well, you know, and one thing that struck me too is that the sort of, a unifying characteristic of uh, people who are 16 and 17 is that they're all in an educational setting where they're being exposed to a range of different ideas. Um, so in a sense, you might think that from a knowledge standpoint, they're they're actually pretty well situated to be making sensible dis- decisions about political questions. Whereas, you know, a significant number of people who are over 18 are not in an educational setting and more and might be might be getting information from only one source and maybe not a necessarily a particularly credible source. So in, in some sense, we might actually think that younger voters might be higher information. Voters. Yeah, perhaps. But I, but I want to highlight one thing you said in terms of the captive audience uh, of them is that we have them all there so we can get them registered. We can get the message about the importance of civics uh, engagement 
to them in, in a much more meaningful way than when they disperse and go off to the workforce or, or higher education. So, um, you know, it's possible that, it, you know, especially if we really think meaningfully about what it means to have uh, democratic engagement in civic education, um, but also just the fact that we have them there, they're a captive audience, and so we should take advantage of that in a good way, advantage of that, you know, and, and let me very quickly respond to the political point, which I also have heard, right, they're just going to vote Democrats. Well, <laughs> or the other one I hear is they're just going to vote for how their parents want them to. So it's just another vote for their parents. Well, again, the research just doesn't bear that out. Um, yes, young people tend to skew more democratic these days. Of course, this would be a great way for the Republican Party to engage a whole new generation of uh, citizens uh, to espouse Republican Party ideals as well. Um, but ultimately, no one can say for sure what the political effects would be. But there's a more fundamental point, which is, kind of who cares what the political effects are going to be if this improves our democracy and makes more people engaged. Again, let's let ideas win the day and not the rules of who can participate. Right, right. Well, something you said there, I thought got at one of the things you do really effectively in your book. So you said, we have them all there, so why not do it now? And that was something that was kind of a theme for me going through your book, sort of asking practical questions about when are the kind of points in people's lives or points in kind of policy-making decisions where it's most efficient and most effective to accomplish the kinds of goals that we want to achieve. And I think you did that especially effectively in some of your discussion of, of voter registration and, and voter turnout. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of some of the, the changes you've noticed and, and, and advocated in favor of in the voter registration context. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for that. So voter registration is an interesting issue in that you know, historically, we didn't have any voter registration laws. And then kind of in the 19, uh, early 1900s, states began uh, passing voter registration requirements. Um, some people say because, you know, your poll, poll worker couldn't know everyone in the, in the polling station anymore. Other people more skeptically say it was sort of an anti-immigrant uh, uh, and, and anti-minority way to, to skew the vote. Uh, but these days, We've seen a movement in a handful of states to expand and ease voter registration. So over a dozen states now have automatic voter registration where the state takes the onus of registering everyone. So you don't have to opt in. You don't have to fill out a form or go even go online. The state takes the information it already has about you, most often through its motor vehicle database, and essentially pushes you onto the voter registration rolls and then sends you a postcard saying you've now been registered if you want to opt out, you, need, you can fill out this form or go online. So it's an opt-out system instead of an opt-in system. Um, and I trace the origin of automatic voter registration. It started in Oregon. And in some ways, it was this IT guy who was working for the Motor Vehicles Office and then got switched over to the Elections Office and said, wait a second, why can't we let these two databases talk to each other? This will help actually clean up the voter rolls mm -hmm. um, and make it easier for people to participate. And what do we see? The first election that Oregon used it in was 2016. They had over 250,000 or 230,000 new registrants, and almost 100,000 of them turned out to vote. So, you know, these are people, now it's hard to know whether these people would have registered anyways, but I think there's, you know, a good sense that a lot of them voted because they were on the voter rolls. And, you know, contrast that with a state where you have a 30-day requirement that is, you know, have to register 30 days before Election Day. Well, a lot of people aren't paying attention 30 days before Election Day. And, mm. you know, if you start pay atten paying attention a week before or the weekend before, uh, you're essentially cut out of the process. 
Um, so automatic voter registration, is, I think, is an innovative way. If we want to have voter registration rolls, it, it can save states money. It can clean up the rolls, so it kind of reduces actual potential of fraud, even though bloated voter registration rolls don't lead to fraud. But for people who are concerned about that, um, it makes it easier for voters, which is really the, the, mm. the, the theme that you picked up on, and I think the most important point. Yeah, so to the extent states rely on kind of motor voter type laws or registration through through the voter registration through through the DMV it sounds like it's really effective in a lot of ways are are there are there any potential voters it misses and and if so how might those people be brought into the voter registration pool as well yeah it does miss some people and and because in part you know, if you don't interact with the motor vehicle's office, if you don't have a driver's license, um, also it will only take over on the, the voter registration rolls people it has information enough information about, for example, your citizenship. So it's not going to take people on from the motor vehicle rolls to the DMV rolls if there's not uh, an indication that the person's a U.S. citizen. Um, but there are people in our society who don't interact with the motor vehicle's office um, because they don't have a driver's license, they live in the city, they don't need uh, to drive. Um, so states are considering now expanding the use of automatic voter registration to look at other state databases as well and to see to what extent can those databases talk with the voter registration rule. So, you know, we might use um, uh, sort of welfare offices or, or assistance offices and the information they have. Um, we might use public university uh, information, um, you know, where you have large public universities. Students in particular who may not have a driver's license is a constituency that might get left off of the, the automatic voter registration mechanism if you're using it just through driver's licenses. So, mm -hmm. you know, the officials in Oregon and a handful of other states, and again, this is a, a, a bipartisan um, initiative. There's plenty of more conservative states that have also adopted automatic voter registration. And officials in those states are looking at ways and other, essentially other state databases uh, that might capture more people. So in addition to registration and ways of increasing registration as a way of, you know, enabling people to exercise their right to vote, you also talk about the mechanics of voting itself. And you, you, you point to a, a several different areas in which uh, states could facilitate people's ability to actually cast a vote. And I was wondering if you could, you could talk a little bit about some of those and sort of places where you think there are sort of easy ways we could make improvements. Yeah, so one of the most interesting ones to me that I found, only because I knew nothing about it before researching this book, um, was places that have vote centers instead of home-based precincts. So that is, instead of having to go vote, if you're voting in person, at the precinct closest to your home, you can show up anywhere in the county to vote, and they're all electronically linked, and uh, and it'll pull up the ballot for your home address, and it'll automatically tell all the other vote centers that you've voted. Um, so Colorado was the first place to start it, a little a county called Larimer County, Colorado. Is this um, The county clerk there, Scott Doyle, uh, a Republican county clerk, who essentially got frustrated one day when it was a 2000 election and he heard about voters who uh, had gone to the wrong precinct and it was sort of late in the day and so then eventually figured out where they were supposed to go were not let in so went to the county courthouse to see if they would could somehow vote there or register a complaint and essentially were not allowed to vote in the 2000 election and doyle sort of thought to himself there's got to be a better way for this mm -hmm. there's got to be a way to save money and make the voting process easier 
And uh, as he put it, he's retired now, and as he said to me, you know, I thought voting should be as easy as going to my local Walmart or local food store, um, you know, and they all have what I need. And so he created the vote center model. It reduced the number of precincts in the county, but increased the convenience factor of voting because, you you know, you might be somewhere away from your home based precinct uh, at work or at school, and you can show up wherever and, uh, and vote. Combine that with some states that have gone to universal vote by mail. Mm. So in, in about four states and a handful of counties and some other states, uh, the election officials will automatically mail you your ballot, even if you don't know that there's an election taking place, like a local election, and you have about two weeks to return it. Um, proponents often refer, to the, often refer to this as a vote at home instead of vote by mail because most people actually will you know, take the time to read their ballot, research whatever they want, and then drop it off at one of the secure mailboxes so they mm-hmm. don't actually mail it in, um, although there's some places now that are, are providing free postage for a, a vote-at-mail ballot. So how is that different from traditional absentee voting? Yeah, it's quite different because in absentee voting, the voter has to take an affirmative step to ask for their ballot and request it. Um, and so the voter you know, sort of has to think ahead of time, I need to make sure I get my ballot, request it. Here, with the universal vote by mail, you know, some people think, well, it's absentee balloting on steroids. It's actually not because the voter doesn't have to do anything. It's the government's responsibility to connect you with your ballot. And not surprisingly, when we do that in the states that do it, turnout has skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. Um, turnout is the highest in uh, universal vote by mail states, again, because it's not requiring the voters to take that additional or initial affirmative step of requesting their ballot. Yeah, I mean... I seem to recall that when I voted by absentee ballot occasionally in the past, I had to give a justification why I needed to do it as well. So some states have a requirement that you uh, have to have a justification. Um, There are some states that now have have eased that and and now have no excuse absentee balloting, so you can just request it. So, you know, states vary on the the strictness by which you can request an absentee ballot. In the universal vote by mail states, you don't have to do that at all. And so these are um, Oregon, Washington State, California... All but one or two counties in Utah are using it now as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the voters don't have to do anything. They're automatically mailed their ballot, uh, you know, two to four weeks before Election Day, depending on the place. Um, and then they can take their time and, and return it. It seems like it might reduce costs in the voting process as well if you need fewer precincts and fewer precinct workers and, you know, not as much congestion at the polls. Absolutely. Now, Colorado sort of has a hybrid in that they do universal vote by mail and vote centers. Um, so if you want to vote in person, if you have that sort of nostalgic go with your neighbors to your polling place on a cold November day, uh, you can do that. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it, I think what Colorado is trying to do is sort of reach everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, in the other states that don't have polling places at all, you're right, it does reduce costs. Now, there are some other costs that offset it, which are important for the system. In particular, you need to have election officials who can match signatures, because mm-hmm. the way that they ensure that there's no fraud in the system is uh, they have a, a pretty stringent signature match requirement where they actually train their election officials um, through forensics. Um, to be able to tell if there's fraud going on and they prosecute vigorously. Um, And the other interesting point is that in universal vote by mail states, there's really been no evidence of voter fraud. Um, There has been evidence in states that have some people can vote absentee of absentee balloting fraud. So people think, well, that means that if you just let everyone vote essentially by absentee, it's going to lead to more fraud. But the evidence doesn't bear that out, I think, because vote by mail state, universal vote by mail states are so attuned to ensuring that 
since this is the only method of voting or the primary method of voting, they're really looking carefully at rooting out any potential fraud in the system. Okay, and I gotta say, right, voting by mail does seem kind of 20th century in a way. Why can't why can't I vote on the internet? I mean, I do everything else on the internet. Wouldn't that be easier? Yeah, um, and I, I address this at the very end of the book uh, because this is a common concern or a common uh, request. You know, not yet is the answer um, because there have been too many hacks. Uh, you know, we already know the Russians have hacked into voter registration databases in a handful of states in 2016. Um, you know, just think of all the bank hacks. You know, people say, well, I do my banking online. Yeah, but how many times have uh, bank institutions been hacked as well. Now, there are a lot of people who think that blockchain technology is sort of the wave of the future for lots of things, including the voting process. And in fact, there are a couple counties in West Virginia that used blockchain voting for overseas and military voters in the primary and are doing so again for the general election in 2018. So um, perhaps something like blockchain could get us to a point where we might have internet voting. Um, but what we've seen, in fact, is that a push against even electronic voting machines to having paper ballots. Because with paper ballots, they're more verifiable, there's less likely of likelihood of fraud, and in a recount, it's a lot easier to ensure that we can get an accurate count. Um, so yes, it is 20th century. Um, I think the reason is because uh, the, the attempts to move towards internet voting have demonstrated that the hackability of the system. Right. Um, and if I could just tell one other quick, quick anecdote that I mentioned in the book, um, the Washington, D.C. election officials uh, a couple years ago, basically said, we want to figure out a way to do internet voting. So they set up a system where they could try to have some sort of online uh, voting process and put it out to the world as a pilot study and said, try to hack it. And it took a team from the University of Michigan less than 24 hours to hack into the system and change vote totals. And they eventually told the D.C. election officials um, that they were in by playing the, forcing the Michigan fight song to play over the, the speakers uh, of the D.C. election computers. So, you know, we're, we're just not there yet. That's a good story. Well, you know, one thing that struck me reading your book is sort of this dichotomy or dialectic between, you know, the the concerns about voter fraud and concerns about legitimacy. And as you say, right, it really does seem like the evidence isn't there for kind of retail voting fraud in the way that sort of people might think about, like people voting on someone else's name or whatever, something like that. Um, but it seems like the, the story you're telling here about, you know, concerns about internet voting is about the appearance of legitimacy. Like whether or not it was actually hacked, people would worry about the potential for being it ha for being hacked and not knowing, right? And it seems like those are the same kinds of concerns that that people raise over um, a lot of the other proposals. And I, I wonder, what do you think about those legitimacy concerns? And 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 how how do you think we can we can best sort of um, help people understand that they're not well-founded? I think it's a good point um, in that any proposal to change the voting system. Uh, is going to come with an objection of, well, is this going to raise the possibility of fraud? And so I think one of my goals in, in talking about these proposals is to demonstrate how, no, they're not actually going to open the door to fraud. In fact, they may make fraud less likely, like with automatic voter registration, which actually can dynamically clean up the voter rolls. Um, even though bloated voter rolls don't lead to fraud, people think they do. Um, so I think the task is both to, to point to the evidence and point to the data that demonstrates that Voter fraud is simply not widespread, and people are looking for it, and they can't find it. Mm -hmm. But also be understanding that people care about this, and so any proposal needs to come with 
an acknowledgement uh, that this isn't going to lead to fraud. The problem with internet voting is we can't say that for sure yet. Mm -hmm. And so I don't advocate it in the book because we don't know enough about whether it would actually open the door to fraud or, or would, you know, we can say that automatic voter registration is going to reduce uh, the voted voter rolls. We can say that, you know, even though we might object to voter ID laws, getting voter IDs into people's hands is a net positive because it's going to sort of alleviate the concerns of the disenfranchisement, even though voter ID laws, by and large, don't root out any kind of fraud that actually exists in our system. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that the task is twofold, is to explain to the public why the evidence isn't there, but also be mindful of the concern and so ensure that any proposals that we make acknowledge that fact. So I think that will lead to more buy-in for a lot of the, the ideas. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, one other thing I was really hoping you could talk about, because I think people all too often, unfortunately, forget about it, is accessibility. To, to voting. And you, you told some really powerful stories about, you know, enabling everybody to engage in voting and, you know, sort of how people sometimes forget about how it can be difficult for some people. Yeah. And so I have a whole chapter on voters with disabilities and ways to ensure that they don't suffer unnecessary hurdles or any hurdles really to the ballot box. Um, I spoke with some um, blind voters in New Hampshire who uh, were sort of at the forefront or happened at the forefront of trying to make the case. And, you know, one of the things that really surprised me when doing the research was the turnout rates among voters with disabilities as compared to the overall electorate. And voters with disabilities simply have lower turnout universally, um, in part because of, or probably entirely because of the barriers that they face. Um, so I talked to a researcher uh, at, at the University of Florida who came up with a new system to vote. Um, he called it the Prime 3 machine. Essentially, it's one machine for all, a one-size-fits-all machine. So no matter what your ability or disability is, you're able to use that machine. So this reduces the stigma of going to the polls and saying, I have to, well, I need to use the one accessible machine. Um, I told a story of, of someone who you know, had to wait 45 minutes to use the accessible machine because the poll workers had to call the county officials to figure out how to turn it on, and they weren't really trained. Uh, so this improves the process really for everyone, because of course everyone was waiting in line for them to solve the problem for this one voter. Um, and I mentioned New Hampshire because the Prime 3 machine was actually used in New Hampshire. They, they call it um, uh, all for one, um, the, the voting machine there, where again, show up to your polling place, whether you're blind, you have hearing impairments, mobility impairments, um, any sort of impairments that you might have, or none at all, you're able to use the same machine. Um, and this really improves the process for voters with disabilities. Right. It seems like vote by mail would also help with accessibility significantly. Yeah, as long as you have a vote by mail system that's accessible for you know someone who's blind, for example. Right. Um, certainly, I think that could be. And there are some places that, for example, um, allow people to... Uh, vote using an iPad when then it, it will essentially print out their ballot, but that, that can solve that accessibility problem as great, well. Great, great. Well, you make, you, you talk about a whole bunch of different things in your book. We're running out of time, so we're not going to be able to get to all of them, but I was wondering if there's any one thing that you talked about in your book that we haven't gotten to yet, but you think it's really important to share with my listeners. Yeah, um, so redistricting is this sort of amorphous, confusing topic that many people think is sort of inside baseball, and yet people, everyday Americans, have taken it on. And, and I love the story I tell in the redistricting chapter of this woman from Michigan who, um, after the 2016 election, posted on Facebook saying, I'm kind of thinking about taking on redistricting in Michigan. Anyone want to join in? 
this created a movement of, uh, you know, people started sharing the, the Facebook post, um, and then all of a sudden, she had all these people contacting her and, and ultimately created this new organization called Voters Not Politicians. They got over 400,000 signatures uh, in the span of just over 100 days, which is unprecedented without paying canvassers to do it. And they have a ballot initiative on the 2018 ballot now to create an independent redistricting commission in Michigan. All started from one Facebook post uh, and people joining in and saying, yes, I want to do this. And th there's lots of stories in the book about the movement in Michigan and the people that got involved. And I was really inspired after I spoke with them. So Yeah, it seems like that that's an important an important issue, especially right now with the change in the personnel in the Supreme Court. I mean, it's, my impression has been that for quite some time now, the effort has been to sort of push uh, redistricting issues uh, in kind of legal claims. And it seems like, you know, with the new change, with, with the new court, it seems unlikely for a lot of those kinds of claims to succeed. But but maybe like retail politics and, you know, doing it at the, the county and state level could be an effective way of achieving some of these kinds of the redistricting goals and policies that people are interested in. I think that's right. And it's retail politics and redistricting, but in a host of other issues that I talk about in the book, including things like ranked choice voting, where voters can, instead of having to choose one candidate among sort of the lesser of two evils, can rank order a bunch of different candidates. Um, public financing, which took off uh, in Maine, largely because of this woman, Allison Smith, who decided to make it her, her issue. Um, again, an everyday person who thought, I can make a difference in my community. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's voter registration, you know, I tell a story about how in Texas, uh, in Hispanic communities, uh, they give uh, voter, regist voter registration forms to taco trucks, um, and it increased uh, registration and turnout among uh, Latino communities there. So a whole host of these issues are really on the ground politics, uh, and I think that is the way forward to positive voting rights enhancements that can really improve our democracy and make it more inclusive. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Josh, and, and thank you for your excellent book. Um, I think it makes a really important contribution to the kind of popular literature around voting and voting rights, and, I, and I, I'm sure it'll be a huge success. I appreciate that. It's uh, officially due out in the spring, but it's available already on pre-order and all those good places that people find books. Thanks so much. Thank you.